We bring ourselves to hear the words from the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. And through those words, may God's word be among us today. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, if indeed when we have taken it off we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the gleams which flash across my mind bring hope and bring wisdom. But may they be not mine, but yours. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Today's sermon explores the fourth of five models by which Christians throughout history have sought to define our relationship to the culture in which we live. By culture, we mean human civilization in all its forms, economics and politics, village life and urban life, philosophy and education, art and leisure, high culture and low culture. Culture includes the plays of William Shakespeare, and the twists and turns of world wrestling entertainment. It includes ballet and NASCAR, the current Vanity Fair article, Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, as well as ChristianMingle.com. These models were developed in the 1940s and 1950s by the Yale theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, While he and his better-known brother Richard were two of the most influential theologians in American history, residing most of their lives in New Haven and New York, respectively, they grew up as children of a small town 
German-speaking pastor in the Midwest. Their own experience of culture spanned from the life of dirt under the fingernails to tea in the halls of world leaders. Each model ultimately deals with, as do all matters of faith, with human sin. The great preacher Gardner Taylor, who passed away in his 90s this year, used to refer to sin as the gone wrongness of human existence. Sin is the reality that things are not what they are supposed to be, that they are not what God has created them to be, that they are not what Christ has redeemed them to be. Our outer nature is wasting away, writes Paul, in our earthly tent in which we live, we groan. For Christ against culture model, each Christ against culture model, as we have seen, locates sin in a different place. In Christ against culture, the gone wrongness under which we groan is located in the world. Everyone and everything that is not specifically Christian or is not in the church is marked by sin and evil. Therefore, the Christian duty is to withdraw from the world or to oppose it. In the Christ of culture model, sin is located primarily in nature. We humans are created with unlimited potential, with the proper education and religious nurture we can overcome the forces of nature and become the people and create the world that God intends. In the Christ and above culture model, the gone wrongness of human existence is located not in the world or not in nature, but is in, it is in the tension between God and humanity. Yet it is questionable just how seriously this model, which we saw last week, takes the pervasiveness of sin in human culture. For in this model, even though Jesus is professed as the Lord of culture, it's clear that the ought of God's will is based largely on the is of human culture. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, says Jesus. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. It is tempting for us in this model, especially if we are privileged, to accept the is as all that can be. Those are the three previous models we've looked at. In today's model, which is called Christ and Culture in Paradox, the sense of human sin is greater than in any of these prior models. But also, I believe, is the sense of God's grace. The paradox at the heart of this model is that even as Christians and human beings, as people sacred and as people secular, We live at one and the same time under the dual realities of sin and grace, of judgment and mercy, of Christ and culture. 
Niebuhr provides some eloquent and wise words which describe the pervasiveness of sin. Human culture is corrupt, he writes, and its corruption reaches all levels of human effort and achievement. In the secular arena, Niebuhr sees sin in the complacency of both moral and rational people, neither of whom seem to have any sense or need for the otherness of God. Niebuhr sees gone wrongness in the despair of those for whom, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. I believe we find such despair in the meaninglessness, alienation, nihilism we see in so many places in our popular and high culture. I think we see it in the coarseness of our language toward one another, in the cynicism over our politics, in the increasing coldness and commoditization of intimacy. Niebuhr also sees sin in the irreligion, atheism, and anti-theism of his day, expressions which have increased and become more respectable in our day. Unless we think Niebuhr is simply a scold against secular society, sort of a church lady with a PhD, he clearly argues that the forms of non-belief that we see are no more marked by sin than, quote, the piety of those who consciously carry God around with them wherever they go. With eerie foresight, Niebuhr writes in 1951, Institutions of celibacy and marriage prevent and also cover a multitude of sins. When Niebuhr moves his prolific pen across the page marked politics, he finds gone wrongness run amok. He sees in desperate acts of passion against the social law, sin, as well as in the zealous obedience of the law-abiding. His words foreshadow the revulsion that we feel toward police who unjustly kill and toward protesters who loot and burn rather than speak and march and sing. The hand of power is never solely disguised by its soft glove of reason, Niebuhr writes. A statement that would do Machiavelli proud, though Niebuhr would lament what Machiavelli would describe. All of this writing about sin is heavy stuff. It is hard for me to read. It's hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to say. It is about as close as you will ever hear me preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. But it is also profound stuff. 
Because above all else, Niebuhr's words caution us about pointing our finger at someone else, about locating sin in some other person or culture or nation or race or class, about thinking that we are better, more noble, more moral, more faithful than our neighbors, even though sometimes we are More importantly, Niebuhr warns us against thinking that even when we are seeking to be good, even when we are seeking to be moral and and noble and faithful, we are not immune from the power of sin. Says the Pharisee when he notices the tax collector next to him in the pew, Lord, I give thee thanks that I am not like that tax collector. Replies the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Niebuhr would have our prayers be much more akin to those of the tax collector than of the Pharisee. But Christ and culture and paradox involves much more than human sin. It also involves a ringing affirmation of God's grace. We do not lose heart, writes the Apostle Paul. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that lies behind all, beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, But at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary. But what cannot be seen is eternal. These words of Paul, not losing heart, being renewed day by day, an eternal weight of glory. All of these are words and images of grace, of God's grace, which according to the Apostle Paul, enters into and overcomes the pervasive reality of sin and evil in church and culture, in individual and family life, in relationships, in politics, in national and global life. If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, says Paul, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal, eternal in the heavens. This is the other side of the paradox, the flip side of the coin of dualism. It is the grace of God which penetrates and overcomes the gone wrongness of the world and which empowers us to live every day with the words that Eric has just said, to live with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. That is what comes from the grace of God. So how does this grace work its way into our culture? How does it work its way, particularly, into the political culture in which so many of us in this congregation work, in which so many of us in this community live? At some point, late in high school or early in college for me, I read a classic of American history called The Anatomy of Revolution by a historian named Crane Brenton. Brenton 
looked at the four major revolutions that have happened in the modern world. The English, the French, the Russian, and the American Revolution. And he found in these revolutions, at least in three of them, a similar pattern. They all started with a honeymoon. Where with a lot of energy and drive, the old order was overturned. Then there was a period of rule by relatively moderate revolutionary forces. Then radical elements in the revolution became impatient and overthrew the moderates. And then there was a reign of terror, followed usually by a counter-revolution in which con conditions went back to what they were before, if not worse. I remember that from history. And then when I began to study theology, I recall the professor saying early in the class that Karl Barth, living through many of these several of these revolutions, saw in the beginning of revolutionary movements a glimmer of God's grace, of God's action in the world. According to Barth, this impulse towards more democratic or egalitarian societies can rightly be seen as ever so slight, sometimes simply symbolic or parabolic movements of grace into the world of sin and evil. But Barth said, as soon as the revolutionary impulse begins to take form in a movement or a program or a political party or a form of government or a full-blown revolution, as in Britain's latter stages, this impulse towards change becomes marked by sin. If we turn to one of Bart's spiritual ancestors, Martin Luther, we see how God's grace can lead us into political life despite the heavy presence of sin in that arena. Luther taught that Christ deals with the fundamental problems of the moral life. But Christ does not directly govern our external actions. He doesn't construct the immediate community, the state, the nation, the form of government, the economic system in which he calls us to carry out his work. Rather, in Luther's view, Christ cleanses the springs of action the internal souls for us to do this work. In Paul's word, renewing our nature day by day. Christ releases people from monasteries and conventions of the pious for service to actual neighbors in the world through all the ordinary vocations of men and women. The ordinary vocations. Education, music, 
politics, military, commerce, medicine, labor, law, journalism, artisanship, public service, child rearing, elder caring, family sustaining. Send your good men, Luther said, into the ministry. It was men in those days. But send your best, he said, your best into politics. Given that none of these Christ and culture models exist in pure form, as we have surveyed them, I have tried to show at least one weakness in each model. In the Christ and culture paradox, Luther and Bart, the weakness is caution. In this model, there can be such an awareness of sin that it's easy to move creation and fall so closely together that we miss seeing or recognizing God's creative action in the world. I understand this criticism because it is a weakness that I have. I know myself to be so deeply aware of the fall that at times I give up on the possibility of God being active in the world for a change that is good. I sometimes fail to do justice to the change that God ultimately brings in the world in hearts and in society because I am so deeply aware of sin. When I witnessed a few weeks ago the forgiveness from family members of the victims of shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, I reacted the way I did when Pope John Paul II met with his attempted assassin in 1983 and in 2007 when several Amish families in Pennsylvania attended the funeral and hugged the widow of the man who had shot and killed their daughters a few days before. Forgiveness is fine, I said to myself. But what about justice? Can forgiveness really be effective if it's just a one-way act? But when the forgiveness bestowed by Mother Emanuel members on Dylan Roof began to move leaders of the state of South Carolina, its governor and its legislatures, I felt to use an old Baptist word, I felt convicted of being slow to recognize the grace of God erupting into this world of sin. In focusing on the reality of the evil of what had happened, 
I was slow to see the other side of Christ in culture and paradox, God's grace. God's grace entering the world at the early stages, helping, helping to bring about change. And the decision to remove from the grounds that belonged to all the state's people a symbol that had been erected at the expense of some of its people. It was an eruption of grace into the world. And it happened of all places in the world of politics, of legislation, of governance, of action. It was an eruption of grace that in my own deep awareness of human sin. I had underestimated the power of God to enter the world and to make a difference. The final model, Christ the transformer of culture, challenges me in my deep awareness of sin that sometimes makes me slow to see grace. So we'll look at that model next week.